Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. This week's BMJ includes an article on suicide risk assessment and intervention in people with mental illness. It's one of our state-of-the-art reviews, so it contains all the latest evidence on the subject. It also gives us a chance to surface this podcast interview from 2010 with the suicide attempt survivor, Kevin Hines, who now campaigns to increase awareness. When the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco was completed in 1937, it was famed as the longest suspension bridge ever built. These days it's more infamous for being the site where the greatest number of people have sought to end their lives. Over 1,200 people have jumped from the bridge. Only 29 have survived. One of those survivors is Kevin Hines. Kevin suffers from bipolar disorder and in 2000 was overwhelmed by his disease and was compelled to kill himself. He joins me now on the phone from San Francisco. So Kevin, when did you start feeling like you wanted to hurt or even kill yourself? Uh, I, had, I had the first thoughts in my uh, junior year of high school and I had um, I had attempted to harm myself by way of cutting. Um, and I stopped because of a song I heard that came on my CD player. And I just pressed repeat and I put the knife down. And that was the first time I, I wouldn't say that was an attempt. I say that was a, a big cry for help. Did you talk to anyone about how you were feeling? No, I didn't talk to anyone about them. I kept it hidden, uh, as, as is the nature of suicide. And talking about it, people don't want to. And people are ashamed of, of those feelings. I didn't want to be shunned before I you know, might, have been, might have died. Alice Colking is a consultant liaison psychiatrist based in the Betsy Cadwallader Health Board in North Wales. She and colleagues have developed the Connecting with People training programme on suicide and self-harm, which now forms part of the Royal College of Psychiatrists education programme. Alice, is it common that people don't speak about their feelings to, to doctors? If you look at people who actually do end their life by suicide, the vast majority have never been seen um, in specialist care and certainly not seen in the year before their suicide. However, you know, these people don't live in a vacuum. They have friends, family, work colleagues, and they go and see their GP. And the majority of people who do die by suicide actually do visit their GP, often in the months before their suicide. A lot of people don't tell anybody that they're having suicidal thoughts. And I think there are many different reasons for that. But I think maybe the, the most important reason is actually stigma and a lack of understanding. And sometimes the first time that an individual will admit to having suicidal thoughts is actually following self-harm. Kevin now tours the US talking to groups and schools and universities about his suicide attempt to raise awareness. Kevin, could you tell us about the day you jumped off the bridge? Uh, well, I, 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 I had written a suicide note the night before to my family, my friends, and my girlfriend at the time. And I got to school and I dropped all of my courses except my English class because it was my favorite. I, I then got on a bus and went out to get a last meal. And I 
went out to the Golden Gate, and on the bus toward the Golden Gate, I just cried profusely to myself in the back of the bus. At this point, praying that someone would ask me if I was okay, if something was wrong, or if they could help me. Because what happens when you become suicidal is that you, you end up making a pact with yourself. You hope someone intervenes, but you're not going to say anything. You're not going to outwardly emote that you're having a hard time, except by the crying and whatnot. Um, and uh, I had done just that, made that pact with myself, that if anybody comes up to me and asks me if I'm okay, I will tell them everything. Alice. Kevin there said he wanted to talk to someone about what was going on in his head. Yet often we're reticent to talk to someone about them feeling suicidal. Is that something you found with GPs in your training sessions? Actually, there's often a misperception amongst both the public and professionals that actually maybe one shouldn't ask about suicidal thoughts in case you give somebody the idea. And that's simply not true. You cannot give somebody the idea of suicidal thoughts simply by asking, and that is often the first step in reducing their risk. And in fact, sometimes some apparently minor interventions can stop somebody going on to complete a suicide. And I've had patients who, you know, quite extraordinary events have stopped them. One lady, I'm convinced, was stopped by a lady on the checkout. And when she put the paracetamol on the conveyor belt, the checkout lady just said, she needs these, love, but in a very kind way. And my patient said, no, no, I don't, and sort of panicked, ran home, locked the door, rang her daughter, and her daughter brought her into the emergency department. Well, unfortunately, in Kevin's case, he didn't have anyone to derail his intention of suicide. Kevin, what happened when you actually jumped? And I half-heartedly and with heavy feet walked on the, on the span, begging myself to turn around. And I walked up and down that bridge for nearly 40 minutes, crying my eyes out like a little baby. A woman approached me, and I believed this woman was going to ask me if I was okay. I believed she was going to save my life, really. And she said, uh, will you take my picture? She was just a tourist, and she just wanted her picture taken at the bridge, which is completely understandable. She had no idea what was going on in my head, nor how, how could she. And it was at that moment when she walked away that I, that I jumped. The millisecond I let go of the rail, I knew I made a mistake. The millisecond my hands let go of that rail, I regretted everything I had done. So, Alice, there, Kevin talked about his regret the second he let go of the handrail on the bridge. Now, is that kind of regret something that you've come across in other patients who've survived a suicide attempt? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the really important point that we can learn from Kevin's story, and it's incredibly poignant, is the intense pain that people feel. And, and certainly in line with what Kevin said and what other patients have told me, at the time, they were not thinking clearly. All they could think about was stopping the pain. And that also fits in with the, um, with the evidence we have in terms of academic research, where patients who had survived a potentially very serious and almost lethal um, suicide attempt, they were asked to complete a questionnaire when they were feeling better. And the vast majority of patients didn't just tick for the, the, um, to end my life, 
they actually tick lots of other different reasons. And I think that shows how complex it is. And that when patients are in this suicidal crisis, they are so distressed that they're simply not thinking clearly. They're simply not able to think of other options, just ending the pain. Hmm. And that makes some research that's in the BMJ this week even more poignant. The study of the Bloor Street Viaduct um, found that physical barriers didn't actually lower the suicide rates. It didn't prevent people going on to commit suicide elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. And I'm very familiar um, with that research, having been a reviewer. And I felt it's very important that it is published. But it's also interesting because it is not in line with all the other published evidence. I think it's actually really interesting to see, well, why in that population, why in that study did it not reduce? And it may say something about the people in that study, how maybe desperate they were, and maybe they had crossed the line so much that it didn't, sadly, it was unable to stop them. And I think if we take the analogy of heart disease and myocardial infarctions, say 50 years ago, cardiologists, when they treated heart disease, it would be simply treating an acute myocardial infarction. Now, of course, these days you have general practitioners actually treating patients in terms of both secondary prevention but also primary prevention and it's very routine that GPs will prescribe a statin with a number needed to treat of 95 and what I'm saying is well let's take this approach in suicide prevention let's not wait until that person is so desperate that they're about to end their life let's actually intervene earlier and when one intervenes earlier the interventions are much more sensible they're much more simple and suicide prevention is not the preserve of specialist mental health services. Everybody can have a role. Yeah, to follow on from that, what can GPs do to get better at that kind of thing? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of evidence that GPs themselves recognise that they need more training. And there, there are two main training packages which are available in terms of an international basis. Um, ASSIST has been incredibly well evaluated and it is suitable for everybody. There's also STORM, which again, um, although originated in the UK, is now actually spread beyond the UK and that is mainly designed for healthcare professionals. And both of these have been mentioned in a recent report from the Royal College of Psychiatrists Working Group into Suicide and Self-Harm, in addition to Connecting with People, which is more recent in origin, which is designed to reduce stigma, increase empathy, and teach basic skills, and almost fits in with the other two in terms of the, the first level of awareness to then persuade people to spend time on a two-day course to, to really get the skills that they will need, which will really help them in the future. Alice, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. And if you want to find out more about suicide risk assessment and intervention, the clinical review I mentioned at the beginning is now available on thebmj.com. <laughs>